morning. Please open your Bibles to John 6, 60 through 71. If you are using the Pew Bible, you will find it on page 892. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. May God bless to our understanding the reading from his holy word. Let's pray. Almighty God, to whom else shall we go? Jesus Christ, He alone has the words to eternal life. And so I pray that um, as He is our Savior, that He would give us grace to turn our eyes upon Him Cling to Him. Rely upon Him as we seek to live for Him. We ask in His name. Amen. What is your breaking point? At what point could you come to where you would turn your back on Christianity and say, this is too much. What could God ask of you that would make you say to God, forget it, I'm leaving the faith. The years 18... I'm sorry, 18... uh, Sorry. The years 1680 to 1688 in Scotland are called the killing time. It was a time, uh, or it was during these years that Charles II and uh, after him also James VII of England, they were the kings of England, they tried to reestablish the Episcopal Church in Scotland. And during this time, actually it began in 1660, Ministers had to submit to the rule of the Episcopal bishops and acknowledge the king as the head of the church or leave their churches. During this time, uh, many congregations began to meet in the fields and in the pastures, in the woods, wherever they could find a private place to gather. And the pastors 
would preach Christ as the Savior of sinners and Christ as the only head of the church. And so, again, this began in 1660, but in 1680, uh, King Charles II, his patience had worn thin, and he decreed that all who were found at one of these field meetings would be imprisoned, and that the leaders of these uh, congregations or of these gatherings would be executed if they did not openly acknowledge that, that Charles II uh, was the head of the church. One expression of acknowledging the king was to pray for the king's well-being. Well, it was during this time that uh, four women had been arrested at one of these uh, field meetings. Their sentences were pronounced upon them. Margaret McLaughlin, uh, her name uh, does not have the U that Alan and Louise and Brian have in their name, still may be related to them. Uh, anyway, she was a 70-year-old widow. Her sentence was to die by drowning. Then there was a Margaret Maxwell. She was a 20-year-old young lady, and her sentence was to be flogged in the streets of Wigtown for three straight days, and then each day she was to stand in the public stocks for an hour each of those three days. Then there was a third Margaret, Margaret Wilson. She was only 18 years old. Her sentence was also to die by drowning. And then there was Margaret's sister, Agnes. And she was only 13, so her father was allowed to pay 100 pounds uh, as a bond for her, and she would be returned to her family. And so there was the older Margaret, Margaret McLaughlin, 70 years old, and the younger one of the younger Margarets, Margaret Wilson, only 18 years old. They were both sentenced to drowning. And so what they did was there was an inlet that came um, as, uh, as the, uh, a river uh, flowed out to the sea. During the tides, as it would be at low tide, they could go out further. And they went out and they attached two, or they drove two stakes into the seabed. One further out, so that the one attached to that would drown first, and then one closer in. And uh, they attached the older Margaret, Margaret McLaughlin, to the stake that was further out. And the reason they did this was to help the younger Margaret reconsider her decision to acknowledge Christ alone as the head of the church. And they attached both ladies to their respective stakes. And as the older Margaret began to choke with a rising tide, the king's soldiers called out to the younger lady, and they said to her, What do you think of her now? And referring to the older Margaret who was beginning to choke and drown. And the 18-year-old young lady responded, I see Christ wrestling there. 
And then she asked the king's soldiers a question. She said, Do you think we are suffering? And she answered her own question, No. Rather, it is Christ in us. He sends us into warfare for His cause. As the waters neared her head, she began to sing a, 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 a hymn based on Psalm 51. And a couple of stanzas from this hymn. My sins and faults of youth do Thou, O Lord, forget. After Thy mercy, think on Me, and for Thy goodness great. God good and upright is the way He'll sinners show. The meek in judgment He will guide and make His paths to know. And then as the waters lapped about her head, with a loud voice she called out from Romans chapter 8, If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is He that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as the waves began to break about her head, the soldiers ran out into the surf and they untied her. And they pleaded with her to simply pray for the king. She responded from 1 Timothy that she desired the salvation of all people and the damnation of none. And so they pushed her, her head under the water and, brought her, and then brought her up and they demanded that she pray specifically for the king's well-being. His well-being as the head of the church. And so she sputtered out a prayer. Lord, give the king repentance, forgiveness, and salvation if it be your holy will. And then they began to curse her and reattached her to the stake where, of course, she drowned and died. I renew my questions. What is your breaking point? At what point will it be too much for you and you turn your back on Christianity? What could God ask of you that would make you say to God, forget it. I'm leaving the Christian faith. Jesus is well aware of your weaknesses. He's well aware of your fears, your temptations, and your struggles. He knows your heart. 
He knows your limits and your breaking point. We're going to see this morning in our passage that He will never, ever let go of His people. We're going to be reminded that nothing, not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not peril, not even sword, will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we're also going to be warned that some do indeed turn their back on Jesus. That some do indeed reach their breaking point and leave their faith behind. Christ separates the true wheat from the chaff. He separates believers from pretenders. He distinguishes the seed that falls on the good soil from the seed that falls on the rocky soil that has no depth. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, the Bible tells us about such people. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so that's a pretty solemn warning. Some people turn their back on the Lord Jesus and leaving. Even people who we're going to see in our passage this morning are called His disciples. And then there's even a more solemn warning. But it's not really given as a warning, rather it's given as a matter of fact. There are people that are so hardened in their heart that they will joyfully speak of Christ's praise with their lips but reject Christ in their hearts. And they will faithfully attend Christ's church, never turn their back on Him, sit under the consistent preaching of His Word, and yet never ever love Him. Some of these people stay in the background of the church. Others get really involved in the church. Still others actively sow seeds of discord and division within the body of Christ. I don't believe these people consciously know that they are rejecting Christ. I believe that they are so good at deceiving others that they fall and pray to their own web of deception. And when you've deceived yourself, the deception's complete. So we're going to encounter um, three types of people in our in this passage this morning. People who turn their back on Christ. People who cannot and will not turn their back on Christ because they're in God's hands. And thirdly, people who um, reject and betray Christ with such hard hearts that they never leave off uh, taking Christ and His praise upon their lips even though their hearts are far from Him. We're going to see in each instance all three categories of people are called Christ's disciples. Disciples who turn back. Disciples who cannot turn back. And disciples who will betray Christ. Don't worry. I'm not just starting my sermon. I'm well over halfway finished. I'm about two-thirds of the way finished. Uh, I want to open up the passage briefly. 
and then drive home my points and we'll be done. Verses 60 through 66 shows us disciples who have turned back. So look at verse 60. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, heard what Jesus had said, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Do you see that phrase? His disciples. Many people who are ardent followers of Christ um, were in the crowd. Uh, Capernaum was a place where Jesus had started His public ministry. In fact, He had lived there for in that town for a period of time. It had become His adopted hometown. Many citizens of Capernaum considered themselves Christ's disciples. And so Christ is here preaching in the synagogue. And many of His disciples from Capernaum have come to, hurt, to hear Him. But they were nearing their breaking point. They were grumbling about Jesus' sermon. They could not swallow Jesus' statement that they must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. Pun intended. They took offense at His statement. I believe because they were embarrassed by Jesus. They were claiming to be His disciples. But He goes and says something so bizarre that they are embarrassed to be connected with Him. Eat His flesh and drink His blood? He's making Himself to sound like He's a cannibal. And so they're embarrassed by Him. Of course, Jesus makes it clear He's not teaching cannibalism. Look at verse 63. Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. In other words, He's telling them that He's speaking of spiritual realities. Literally eating His flesh will not help them at all. The flesh is of no help at all, He says. But see, at this point they won't listen to Jesus. But their problem is not that they misunderstand what He's saying. Rather, their problem at root is unbelief. The heart of the problem is the problem of their hearts. Look with me at verses 64 and 65. Jesus says, There are some of you who do not believe. There's the issue. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. Jesus did not try and build on the past positive vibes that these people had in their connection to Him. And I know that that would have been tempting. Hey, they, we started out well. I'm going to build on the positives. I'm going to try and strengthen these connections I have with the people so they won't turn their back on me. But He doesn't do that. Rather, He wanted them to see what was really at issue. He wanted to see them to see for themselves their unbelief. He knew that they were unbelieving. He wanted them to understand that they were unbelieving. And so He repeated His statement earlier from verse 44. This is why I told you, verse 65, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He's seeking to humble them. But it was to no avail 
Look at verse 66. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. They had reached their breaking point and they had said essentially, forget this and forget Jesus. They had gone as far as they were going to go. I think it appropriate that I make a few applications before I move on. First of all, Notice what caused the disciples um, to take offense at Jesus. They took offense at a difficult truth. And it's fashionable these days for many Christians, or we could use the language of our text, uh, many disciples of Jesus, to um, take offense at biblical doctrines and reject them just out of hand if it doesn't meet with, uh, with their approval. So the unfashionable doctrine of the day that many are rejecting, many people who claim to be Christians are rejecting, is the Bible's assertion, assertion that homosexuality is a sin. Well, that's not correct, culturally speaking. That can't be correct. And uh, people uh, reject it out of hand. The Bible also says that sexual relations between heterosexuals, between uh, men and women outside the marriage covenant is sin as well. That doesn't meet with many people's approval, and so that can't be right. It must be optional. Um, And so many Christians reject the Bible's teaching on these subjects and on other subjects and uh, sit as judges over the Scripture, whether they will, uh, whether this doctrine or that doctrine is worthy of them to be believed. So many people left Jesus, but Jesus then turned to His disciples and He said to them, Do you want to go away as well? And uh, this was in verse 67. But Simon Peter, as usual, spoke for the whole group. Look at what he said in verses 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here's the mark of a true believer. He or she cannot quit. Um... They know that despite the many times they do not understand what is happening to them, they cannot leave Jesus. He alone has the words of eternal life. I love what Ray Steadman says. Uh, He's a pastor that preached in the 60s and 70s out in California. He says, In Christ we have a love that can never be fathomed, a life that can never die, a righteousness that can never be tarnished, a peace that can never be understood, a rest that can never be disturbed, a joy that can never be diminished, a hope that can never be disappointed, a glory that can never be clouded, a light that can never be darkened, a happiness that can never be interrupted, a strength that can never be enfeebled, a purity that can never be defiled, a beauty that can never be married, I'm sorry, a beauty that can never be marred. I have a beauty that was married, (laughs) my wife. A wisdom that can never be baffled and resources that can never be exhausted. 
you found Jesus to be like that, where else can you go? Who else can measure up to that? Where can you find anything in this world that can compare to Jesus Christ? Who can be His substitute? And you know these things about Jesus because God has revealed it to you. Or as Jesus says uh, in verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I'm sorry, that I started a little early in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit who reveals these things to you. And these words, or the, the, the teachings about Christ that have been revealed to you are life. Because they reveal the Lord Jesus. You have been taught by God. You know these things about Jesus because God has revealed it to you and you know that He will not let you go. And so you hang on to Him in spite of whatever circumstances you may be in, whatever difficulties you may be in, whatever things you don't understand about God, you hang on to Jesus. To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And Peter made this wonderful confession, but he got one thing wrong. When he used the word we, he inclusively used it for all twelve of the disciples. And so Jesus corrected him in verses 70 and 71. Look at uh, the last two verses of this text. Jesus answered him, or Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. That's a strong word. Jesus says, one of you is a devil. It was clear to Jesus that Judas was never really with Jesus. Judas was always against Jesus. In fact, uh, Judas was made the treasurer of, for the group, for the twelve. And the Scripture tells us that Judas was uh, stealing money from the treasury. And yet Jesus says, I chose all twelve of you. It's a stunning statement. Undoubtedly, Judas felt entitled to eternal life. I'm part of the twelve. I wake up every morning in the presence of Jesus. I go to sleep every morning in the presence of Jesus. I will... I'm one of the twelve. I am entitled to eternal life. And yet the entire time, he was a devil, self-deceived. So self-deceived that he did not question um, his salvation. And yet, he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. As I close this sermon... I want you to ask, to which group do I belong? Does your heart say within you and to the Lord, Lord, to whom shall I go? Or do you belong to the first group who has a breaking point? 
has a point at which you say, if I get to this point, I'm not going any further. Or, I am unwilling to give this up for the Lord Jesus. Or, is your heart like that of Judas, centered in yourself, and all you can hear is the word of the Lord Jesus on the day of judgment. There's one who has betrayed me. Where are you this morning? Jesus loves us so much that He came, suffered on the cross, purchased us for God. Have you understood and believed He alone is the Savior and that there is none, none else to whom we can go? Let's pray together. Lord, help us to examine our own hearts. For there are many um, pastors standing in pulpits this morning who are a devil. There are many people sitting in pews this morning all around the world who will turn back or who are also like Judas. Lord, I ask that You pour out Your Spirit upon us. Help us to have Your Spirit within us that cries out along with Peter. To whom else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We cling to You now. Where else can we go? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.